Hello, everyone. Welcome back to my podcast. It's been a while. I am sorry, <laughs> but we're going to continue where we left off, and we're going to start with Chapter Nine of the Scarlet Letter, The Leech. Now, without further ado, happy listening. Under the appellation of Roger Chillingworth, the reader will remember was hidden another name, which its former wearer had resolved should never more be spoken. It has been related now in the crowd that witnessed Hester Prime's ignominious exposure to the man, elderly travel worn, who just emerging from the perilous wilderness. Beheld the woman, in whom he hoped to find embodied the warmth and cheerfulness as of home, set up as a type of sin before people. Her matronly fame was trodden under all men's feet. Infamy was babbling around her in public marketplace, for her kindred, should the tidings ever reach them, and for the companions of her unspotted life, there remained nothing but a contagion of her dishonor. Which would not fail to be disturbed in strict accordance and proportion with the intimacy and sacredness of their previous relationship. Then why, since the choice was himself, should the individual whose connection with the fallen woman had been most intimate and scared of them and sacred of them all, come forward to vindicate his claim to an inheritance so little desirable? He resolved not to be pilloried. Beside her, upon the pedestal of shame, unknown to all but Hester Prynne, and possessing the lock and key of her silence, he chose to withdraw his name from the roll of mankind, and, as regarded his former ties and interests, to vanish out of the life as completely as if he indeed lay at the bottom of the ocean, where the rumor had long ago consigned him. This purpose, once effected, knew. Interests would immediately spring up, and likewise a new purpose, dark. It is true, if not guilty, but of force enough to engage the full strength of his faculties. In pursuance of this resolve, he took up his residence in the Puritan town as Roger Chillingworth, without other introduction than the learning and intelligence of which he possessed more than a common measure. His studies at the previous Period of his life had made him extensively acquainted with the medical science of the day. It was a phys- it was a physician that he presented himself, and as such was cordially received. Skillful men of the medical and surgical profession were of rare occurrence in the colony. They seldom, it would appear, partook of the religious zeal that brought their emigrants across the Atlantic. In their researches into the human frame, it may be that the higher and more suitable faculties of such men were materialized, and that they lost the spiritual view of existence amid the intricacies of that wondrous mechanism, which seemed to involve art enough to compromise all of life within itself. At all events, the health of the good. Town of Boston, so far as medicine had aught to do with it, had hitherto lain in the guardianship of an aged deacon and apoth- 
Vicari, whose piety and godly deportment were stronger testimonials in his favor than any that he could have produced in the shape of a diploma. The only surgeon was one who combined the occasional exercise of that noble art with the daily and habitual flourish of a razor. To such a professional body, Roger Chillingsworth was a brilliant acquisition. He soon manifested his familiarity with the ponderous and imposing machinery of antique phys- physic in which every remedy contained a multitude of far-fetched and heterogeneous ingredients, as elaborately compounded, as if the purposed result had been the exiler of life. In his Indian captivity, moreover, he had gained much knowledge of the proprieties of native herbs and roots, nor did he conceal from his patients that these simple medicines, nature's boon to the untortured savage, had quite as large a share of his own confidence as a European pharmacopoeia, which so many learned doctors had spent centuries in elaborating. This learned stranger was exemplary, as regarded, at least, the outward forms of a religious life, and, early after his arrival, had chosen for his spiritual guide the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale. The young divine, whose scholar-like renown still lived in Oxford, was considered by his more fervent admirers as little less than a heaven-ordained apostle. Destined, should he live and labor for the ordinary term of life, to do as great deeds for the now feeble New England church as early fathers had achieved for the infancy of the Christian faith. About this period, however, the health of Mr. Dimsdale had evidently begun to fail. By those best acquainted with his habits, the paleness of the young minister's cheek was accounted for by his too earnest devotion to study. His scrupulous ful- fulfillment of parochial duty, and more than all, by the fasts and vigils of which he made a frequent practice in order to keep the grossness of his earthly state from clogging and obscuring his spiritual lamp. Some declared that if Mr. Dimsdale were really going to die, it was cause enough that the world was not worthy to be any longer trodden by his feet. He himself, on the other hand, with characteristic hum- humility, av- avowed his belief that if providence should see fit to remove him, it would be because of his own unworthiness to perform the- its humblest mission here on earth. With all this difference of opinion as to the cause of his decline, there could be no question of the fact. His form grew emaciated. His voice, though still rich and sweet, had a certain melancholy prophecy of decay in it. He was often observed on any slight alarm or other sudden incident to put his hand over his heart with first a flush and then a paleness indicative of pain. Such was a young clergyman's condition, and so imminent the prospect that his drawing light would be extinguished all untimely when Roger Chillingworth made his advent to the town. 
His first entry on the scene, few people could tell winds, dropping down as it were out of the sky or starting from the nether earth, had an aspect of mystery which was easily heightened to the miraculous. He was now known to be a man of skill. It was observed that he gathered herbs and the blossoms of wild flowers and dug up roots and plucked off twigs from the forest trees like one acquainted with hidden virtues in what was valueless to common eyes. He was heard to speak of Mr. of Sir Kenelm Digby and other famous men whose scientific attainments were esteemed hardly less than supernatural, as having been his correspondents or associates. Why, with such rank in the learned world, had he come hither? What could he, whose sphere was in great cities, be seeking in the wilderness? In answer to this query, a rumor gained ground, and, however observed, was entertained by some very sensible people, that heaven had wrought an absolute miracle by transporting the, an eminent doctor of physic from a German university bodily through the air and setting him down at the door of Mr. Dimsdale's study. Individuals of wiser faith, indeed, who knew that heaven promotes its purposes without aiming at stage effect of what is called miraculous interposition, were inclined to see a providential hand in, in Roger Chillingsworth's so opportune arrival. This idea was counter countenanced by the strong interest which the physician ever manifested in the young clergyman. He attached himself to him as a parishioner and sought to win a friendly regard and confidence from his naturally reserved sensibility. He expressed great alarm at his pastor's state of health, but was anxious to attempt the cure, and if early undertaken seemed not despondent of a favorable result. The elders of the deacons, the motherly dames, and the young and fair maidens of Mr. Dimsdale's flock were alike importunate that he should make a trial of the physicians frankly of feared offered skill. Mr. Dimsdale gently repelled their entreaties. I need no medicine, said he. But how could the young minister say no when, with every successive sabbath, his cheek was paler and thinner? and his voice more tremendous than before, when it had now become a constant habit rather than a casual gesture to press his hand over his heart. Was he weary of his labors? Did he wish to die? These questions were solemnly propounded to Mr. Dimsdale by the elder ministers of Boston and the deacons of his church, who, to use their own phrase, dealt with him, on the sin of rejecting the aid which providence so manifestly held out. He listened in silence and finally promised to confer with the physician. We're at God's will, said the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale, when in fulfillment of his pledge, he requested all Roger Chillingsworth's professional advice. I could be well content that my labors and my sorrows and my sins and my pains should shortly end with me, and what is earthly from them be buried in my grave, and the spiritual go with me to my eternal state, rather than that you should put your skill 
to the proof in my behalf. Ah, replied rather Roger Chillingsworth, with that quietness which, whether imposed or natural marked, all his deportment. It is thus that a young clergyman is apt to speak. Youthful men, not having taken a deep root, give up their hold of life so easily. And saintly men who walk with God on earth would fain be away to walk with him on the golden pavements of the new Jerusalem. Nay, rejoined the young minister, putting his hand to his heart with a flush of plain flitting over his brow. Were I with, whither to walk here, there, I could be better content to toil here. Good men never interpret themselves too meanly, said the physician. In this manner, the mysterious old Roger Chillingsworth became the medical advisor of the Reverend Doc, Mr. Dimsdale. As not only the disease interest in the physician interested the physician, but he was strongly moved to look into the character and qualities of the patient. These two men, so different in age, came gradually to spend much time together. For the sake of the minister's health, and to enable the leech to gather plants with healing balm in them, they took long walks on the seashore or in the forest, mingling various talk with the plash and murmur of those waves and the solemn wind anthem among the treetops. Often, likewise, one was the guest of the other, in his place of study and retirement. There was a fascination for the minister in the company of the man of science, in whom he recognized an intellectual cultivation of no moderate depth or scope, together with a range and freedom of ideas that he would have vainly looked for among the members of his own profession. In truth, he was startled, if not shocked, to find this attribute in the physician. Mr. Dimsdale was a true priest, a true religionist, with the reverential sentiment largely developed and an order of mind that impelled itself powerfully along the track of a creed and wore its passage continually deeper with the lapse of time. In no state of society would he have been what is called a man of liberal views. It would always be essential to his peace to feel the pressure of a faith about him, supporting, while it confirmed him within its iron framework. Not the less, however, though with a tremulous enjoyment, he did feel the occasional relief of looking at the universe through the medium of another kind of intellect than those with which he habitually held converse. It was as if a window were thrown open, admitting a freer atmosphere into the close and stifled study, where his life was wasting itself away amid the lamplight or obstructed day beams, and the musty fragrance, be it sensual or moral, that exhales from books. But the air was too fresh and chill to be long breathed with comfort. So the minister and the physician with him withdrew again within the limits of what their church defined as orthodox. Thus, Roger Chillingsworth scrutinized his patient carefully, both as he saw him in his ordinary life, keeping an accustomed pathway in rage of thoughts familiar to him, and as he appeared when thrown amidst the other moral scenery, the novelty of which might call out something new to the surface of his character. 
He deemed it essential, it would seem, to know the man before attempting to do him good. Wherever there is a heart and an intellect, the diseases of the physical frame are tinged with the peculiarities of these. In Arthur Dimsdale, thought and imaginations were so active, and sensibility in, in so intense, that the bodily infirmity would be likely to have its groundwork there. So, Roger Chillingsworth, the man of skill, the kind and friendly physician, strove to go deep into his patient's bosom, delving among his principles, prying into his recollections, and probing everything with a cautious touch, like a treasure seeker in a dark cavern. Few secrets can escape an investigator who has opportunity and license to undertake such quest and skill to follow it up. A man burdened with a secret should especially avoid the intimacy of his physician. If the latter poses native sagacity and a nameless something more, let us call it intuition, if he show no intrusive egotism nor disagreeably prominent characteristics of his own, if he have the power which must be born with him to bring his mind into such affinity with his patience, that this last shall unawareness, unawares have spoken that he imagines himself only to have thought. If such revelations be received without tumult, and acknowledged not so often by the other sympathy as by silence, an inarticulate breath, and here there a word to indicate that all is understood. If to these qualifications of a confident be joined the advantages afforded by his recognized character as a physician, then, at some inevitable moment, would the soul of the sufferer be dissolved, and flow forth in a dark but transparent stream, bringing all its mysteries into the daylight. Roger Chillingsworth possessed all, or most of the attributes above enumerated. Nevertheless, time went on. A kind of intimacy, as we have said, grew between these two cultivated minds, which had as wide a field as whole sphere of human thought and study to meet upon. They discuss every topic of ethics and religion, of public affairs and private character. They talked much on both sides of matter that seemed personal to themselves, and yet no secret such as the physician fancied must exist there ever stole out of the minister's consciousness into his companion's ear. The latter had suspicions, indeed, that even the nature of Mr. Dimsdale's bodily disease had never fairly been revealed to him. It was a strained reserve. After a time, at a hint from Roger Chillingsworth, the friends of Mr. Dimsdale effected an arrangement by which the two were lodged in the same house, so that every ebb and flow of the minister's lifetide might pass under the eye of his anxious and attached physician. There was much joy throughout the town when this greatly desirable object was attained. It was held to be the best possible measure for the young clergyman's welfare, unless, indeed, as often urged by such as felt authorized to do so, he had selected some more, someone of the many blooming damsels spiritually devoted to him to become his devoted wife.
This latter step, however, there was no present prospect that Arthur Dimsdale would be prevailed upon to take. He rejected all suggestions of the kind, as if priestly celibacy were one of his articles of church discipline. Doomed by his own choice, therefore, as Mr. Dimsdale so evidently was, to eat his unsavory mortal always at another's board, and endure the lifelong chill which must be his lot who seeks to warm himself only at another's fireside. It truly seemed that this sagacious, experienced, benevolent old physician, with his concord of paternal and reverential love for the young pastor, was the very man of all mankind to be constantly within reach of his voice. The new abode of the two friends was a pious widow, of good social rank, who dwelt in a house covering pretty nearly the site on which the venerable structure of King's Chapel has since been built. It had a graveyard, originally Isaac Johnson's home field on one side, and so well adapted to call up serious reflections suited to their respective employments and both minister and man of physic. The motherly care of good widow assigned to Mr. Dimsdale a front apartment with a sunny exposure and heavy window curtains to create a noontide shadow when desirable. The walls were hung around with tapestry, said to be from the goblin looms, and all at and at all events representing the scriptural story of David and Bathsheba, and Nathan and the prophet, in colors still unfaded, but which made the fair woman of the scene almost as grimly picturesque as the woe-denouncing seer. Here, the pale clergyman piled up his library, rich with parchment-bound folios of fathers, and the lore of rabbis, and monkish erudition, of which the Protestant defines, even while they vilified and decreed that class of writers were yet constrained often to avail themselves. On the other side of the house, old Roger Chillingsworth arranged his study and laboratory. Not such a modern man of science would reckon even tolerably complete, but provided with a distilling apparatus and the means of compounding drugs and chemicals, which the, which the practiced alchemist knew well how to turn to purpose. With such commodiousness of situation, these two learned persons sat themselves down, each in his own domain, yet familiarly passing from one apartment to the other and bestowing a mutual and not incurious inspection to one another's business. And the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale's best discerning friends, as we have imitated, very reasonably, reasonably imagined that the hand of providence had done all this for the purpose besought in so many public and domestic and secret prayers of restoring the young ministers to health. But... It must now be said, another portion of the community had latterly begun to take its own view of the relation betwixt Mr. Dimsdale and the mysterious old physician. When an uninstructed multiple, multitude attempts to see with its eyes, it is exceedingly apt to be deceived. When, however, it forms its judgment, as it usually does, on the situation in intuitions of its great and warm heart,
The conclusions thus attained are often so profound and so unerring as to possess the character of truth supernaturally revealed. The people, in the case of which we speak, could justify its prejudice against Roger Chillingsworth by no fact or argument worthy of serious refutation. There was an aged handicraftsman, it is true, who had been a citizen of London at the period of Sir Thomas Overbury's murder, now some 30 years agone. He testified to have seen the physician under some other name, which the narrator of the story had now forgotten in company with Dr. Foreman, the famous old conjurer who was implicated in the affair of Overbury. Two or three individuals hinted that the man of skill during his ending captivity had enlarged his medical attainments by joining in the incantations of the savage priests who were universally acknowledged to be powerful enchanters, often performing seemingly miraculous cures by their skill in the black art. A large number, and many of these were persons of such sober sense and practical observation that their opinion would have been valuable in other matters, affirmed that Roger Chillingsworth's aspect had undergone a remarkable change while he had dwelt in town, and especially since his abode with Mr. Dimsdale. At first, his expression had been calm, meditative, scholar-like. Now, there was something ugly and evil in his face, which they had not previously noticed, and which grew still the more obvious to sight the oftener they looked upon him. According to the vulgar idea, the fire of his laboratory had been brought from the lower regions and was fed with infernal fuel, and so, as might be expected, his visage was getting sooty with the smoke. To sum up the matter, it grew to be a widely diffused opinion that the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale, like many other personages of special sanctity in all ages of Christian world, was haunted either by Satan himself or Satan's emissary in the guise of old Roger Chillingsworth. This diabolical agent had the divine permission for a root season to burrow into the clergyman's intimacy and plot against his soul. No sensible man, it was confessed, could doubt on which side the victory would turn. The people looked with an unshaken hope to see the minister come forth out of the conflict transfigured with the glory which he would unquestionably win. Meanwhile, nevertheless, it was sad to think of the perchance moral agony through which he must struggle towards his triumph. Alas, to judge from the gloom and terror of the depths of the poor minister's eyes, the battle was a sore one, and the victory anything but secure. Alrighty, um, and that was, uh, chapter nine. Now, (laughs) I've said this so many times, but I'm going to say it again. I love how this book is written. The imagery, okay? I love the imagery in this book. And I'm, I'm not just saying, I'm not just talking about the imagery, just because I like it. The imagery has a lot to do with the storytelling. 
of this book and uh, symbolism. And we're going to start with the first thing, which is the chapter's name. It's called The Leech. Now, as we read through the chapter, we discovered that The Leech is referring to Roger Chillingsworth. Now, a quick refresher just in case you know it's always nice to look back refresh our minds right so roger chillingsworth is hester prine's ex-husband in chapter three i believe if my memory doesn't fail me in chapter three uh mr chillingsworth he is presented as a physician and he enters hester's jail cell and they have a conversation. He's being kind of mean to her. And he says, okay, I don't want to be recognized as your husband. And now it's my mission to find out who is that man who impregnated you. And Hester's just like, oh no, are you gonna, did I just like sell my soul or something? You're evil. And he's just like, no, don't worry. It's not gonna be your soul. But he started laughing. So we know that Mr. Roger, he's kind of, he's kind of suspicious, evil, right? The only good thing we know is that it's not Hester's soul who's going to, I don't know, like, die. But now, we can kind of link that conversation to this chapter. Because it has been mentioned in the previous two chapters, I believe, that Mr. Dimsdale, or Arthur, let's call him Arthur, Arthur's health is not going so well. It's deteriorating. He is declining. He looks worse every single day. And nobody knows why. And the leech, who is um, uh, Roger Chillingsworth, Mr. Chillingsworth, because that's what he's referred to, um, he he's with Mr. Dimsdale all the time. Now, I'm not saying that it's Roger uh, Chillingsworth who is causing Mr. Dimsdale's um, deteriorating health, but you you guys know what a leech is, right? If you don't, I'm going to give you a a simple, very simple explanation, but it will do the trick. It's basically a kind of slimy, ugly slug that lives in, like, swamps and stuff. And it, with its mouth, it just, you know, hangs on to you and starts sucking out your blood, essentially. So that's the leech. And the fact that they are referring uh, Chillingsworth as a leech, it's like he's sucking the life out of uh, Arthur, Mr. Dimsdale, right? But if, if it's kind of contradictory because for the most part, the chapter's just describing the relationship between the two men. And it's a very friendly and respectable relationship. They're both fascinated with each other and i get it because you know it's a man of science and a man of religion and religion and science 
they don't, they don't kind of, they, they, they kind, they're not really the best of friends. They don't really go with each other hand in hand that well. So the fact that they enjoy each other's company and are fascinated by each other, it's it goes to show that they have a pretty friendly relationship. Heck, they even live together now. But it is interesting to notice that towards the end of the um, the chapter, the imagery kicks in. Okay, imagery. Um, it speaks of this small group of people in the community who you know are kind of looking from afar. They're observers. Okay, they they see this with their eyes. And first, we have the imagery of um mr dimsdale deteriorating he knows he's pale he 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 has this tendency of putting his hand on his heart and feeling pain when he does so his voice seems kind of like it's dying the gaze, like the little gaze in his eyes seems like it's you know burning out and then we have uh, the imagery on Chillingsworth's appearance. And he, when he came, he, he, when he came into town, he was already not the best looking guy. But he seemed, you know, more mature, more like a scholar. But now they describe his appearance as being evil, malicious, a malicious, ugly looking person and it's interesting because i mean they refer to him as a leech and the leech what it does is suck your blood so kind of like the vampire of nature but they're not that cool they're 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 kinda, they're literally like slugs or something <laughs> anyways <clears throat> right um they suck your blood out and i don't i don't think people like getting their blood sucked out without permission or just getting their blood sucked out in general right so that kind of be that can kind of be linked to you know evil and a leech is kind of like a slug thing so that can also be linked to ugly but it's 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 interesting how uh it's the the chapter specifically points out that his appearance like it was already kind of changing when it first came when he first came to town but like specifically when he um leached on to uh Arthur uh Mr. Dimsdale his appearance it just became more ugly malicious and evil now we don't know why but it's obviously symbolism. Uh, and remember when I said to think of this book kind of like a essay where there's going to be like some issues, right? And one of the issues was, oh, who is this man? Well, in that body paragraph, we already know that Roger Chillingsworth has made it his mission to find that man. And... Uh, he he plans on doing something kind of evil to him as he threatened Hester in the third chapter, I believe. And 
Mr. Dimsdale's behavior, specifically in the last chapter where he got really emotional with uh, Little Pearl and defending Hester. It kind of leads me to a little um, prediction or inference, if we can call it that. And I'm going to say that the man who did the deed with our Mrs. Miss, Miss, sorry, our Miss Hester Prine and is the father of Little Pearl is Arthur Dimsdale. And that could kind of go to the symbolism as, uh, you know, Chillingsworth, he's the bad guy. He wants to do something to the man who did this to Hester. But not because he wants to defend Hester, but because he feel he he he's angry that they did that to him. Because it, it, in a way, it's he um, the fact that Hester did that is also dishonoring him. But he can't really take it out on Hester. I mean, he could, but he chose not to, and instead he wants to take it out on the man, right? So it could kind of symbolize, you know. Arthur being the animal and of uh, Chillingsworth being the leech and Chillingsworth sucking out the blood from the animal and the animal doesn't doesn't realize or doesn't know well he doesn't realize and slowly the life is just draining out of him right but Chillingsworth doesn't know that Arthur is a father. Well, I I don't even know that Arthur is a father. It's just a prediction. But I'm just saying that if Arthur was the father, Chillingsworth doesn't know that Arthur is the father, right? Uh, so how would he, you know, you know, be sucking the life out of it? Now, um, this is where really paying attention to uh the the book comes in handy because even though the whole chapter is describing the relationship the good relationship that the two men have they keep um the author keeps on pointing out that Chillingsworth he kind of he feels something it's like an intuition and he wants to get into Arthur's mind he wants to get into Arthur's soul he just wants to study Arthur, like, engrave himself into his mind, leech himself onto him. See that? See that? Leech himself onto him. And maybe, maybe he's not even sucking the life out of him. He's sucking, he's trying to suck out information. It's not blood. It might not be the life. He's trying to suck out information. Um, to, to, uh, quote-unquote, heal him but he can't he can't help but feel that there's something more so i feel that chillingsworth he's kind of suspecting a bit from arthur and you can kind of see that in the last chapter where chillingsworth is like hey arthur why are you why are you getting so emotional man like why are you standing up for um that sinner hester prine and the 
demonic daughter like what's gone into you man why why are you taking this so personal huh 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 like he was questioning him so much so i think uh roger chillingsworth is catching on to something and i'm catching on to something because i already made my prediction i'm laying it i'm laying my cards out on the table my prediction is that arthur arthur well not prediction it's more like a hypothesis right so Arthur Dimsdale, I'm calling it right now. Arthur Dimsdale is Little Pearl's father. And it makes it even more scandalous because he's the priest. Oh my god, how scandalous this book is. So entertaining. But that is about it. So in summary, because I spoke too much, a lot of things were going through my mind. Forgive me for that. Um, but into to uh, synthesize, to summarize, um, what to take away from the imagery and symbolism, Roger Chillingsworth is a leech who is trying to suck the information, he's trying to suck information that he feels that Arthur Dimsdale is hiding, and Based on that, we have formulated a hypothesis slash prediction, however you want to call it. And that is that Arthur Dimsdale is Little Pearl's father and the man who Hester Prime is defending. And I'm going to take a step further and going to make another prediction. And I'm going to say that Roger Chillingsworth is going to find out sooner or later because they live together. When you live together, it's kind of hard not to find out things, right? (laughs) He's going to find out of Arthur Dimsdale about what Arthur Dimsdale did, which is, you know, he's little Pearl's father. And Chillingsworth is going to kill him because they describe him as evil and malicious and ugly now. So Chillingsworth, he's going to be the bad guy. I'm just calling it right now as well. He's going to be the bad guy. He's going to do something to Arthur. And yeah. Yeah. That is, those are my two predictions. But that is what I have now. That, that is it for now. Um, I hope you enjoyed this chapter, and I'll be seeing you real soon.